There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Philly. Philly. Hey, Twisters, what up? This is Dina Marie, the host of the Twisted Philly podcast. Yeah, I did actually just use my name. I don't know, I guess after six months, it's probably safe. A modicum of anonymity is something I've been trying to maintain. But if you interact with me on social media, you at least know my first name. So I figured you guys have earned me using it. I hope everyone has recovered from the last episode, Heidnik's House of Horrors. I feel like I'm still recovering, but I can't host a podcast about stories in and around Philly without telling the story of Gary Heidnick and his victims. And I have to tell you, I need a break from heinous shit. Oh my God. The next episode or two will be a little more lighthearted. I'm going to play with some history because I feel like I haven't done that in over a month. And that's my favorite type of story to tell about this city. Today's episode is about one of my absolute most favorite places in Philadelphia. It's rich with history, it has a few legends, a possible haunting, and it features the largest sculpture on the top of a building anywhere in the entire world. That's right, Twisters, this episode is all about City Hall. When I decided to launch Twisted Philly, I knew City Hall had to be featured in my logo. I used a photograph I'd taken of City Hall, and I wanted it to twist. How the hell do you twist a building? I had no freaking clue at the time, but I knew I wanted that clock tower to spin or spiral or just twist somehow. So I installed a number of different photo editing software tools, and I spent weeks, yes, actually weeks, until I got that clock tower to move and then get the effects I wanted so it looked old, Granted, the clock tower of City Hall in my logo looks more like curves than an actual twist, but it was close enough for me. Why do I love this building so much? It's one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever seen in the entire country. I haven't visited all 50 states, but I've visited about half, and I've also been to Europe. I'm sure if I did visit the entire country, still nothing would compare, at least for me, to City Hall. So let's go back to when it all started. About 200 years before construction began on this architectural masterpiece, William Penn, our founding father here in Pennsylvania, and the designer, really, of the city of Philadelphia, had a vision of how this city should take shape. Part of that vision included five public squares that would be used for exactly that purpose, a public space. And at the center of all of these spaces was an area William Penn called Center Square, which was intended for public offices like a city controller or local city government. So William Penn really selected the spot for City Hall two centuries before it was even built. Fast forward to the mid-1800s and Philadelphia had over a half million residents and a really tiny municipal building on 5th and Chestnut Streets. There wasn't enough space to house all the members of city government and Pennsylvania legislature and Philly was feeling a little jealous about other cities that were building up faster than we were. So an idea was born that our city would have a new facility to support our local government and the Philadelphia courts. 
The city wanted something magnificent, a structure that could only be envisioned and brought to life by the world's top architects. Philadelphia held multiple competitions until finally settling on a Swedish architect who designed other masterpieces in the city. Now, we had a budget of seven and a half million dollars at the time, and construction began in 1871. And on it dragged and dragged and dragged. It took 30 years for City Hall to be completed, and part of the reason for so many delays besides the sheer scope and size of the building was that over those 30 years, technology kept advancing. So the builders were like, oh shit, there's this thing called electricity now. We can flip a switch and have lights. Maybe we should throw that in. Hey, did you know there's this new pulley system that makes large boxes that can hold people go up and down? It's called an elevator. Considering this sucker is going to be almost 600 feet tall, maybe we should throw in a few of those too. That budget of $7.5 million grew and grew and grew. And of course, it was all at the expense of the city. By the time City Hall was finished, the budget hit $25 million. And if I were to compare that to today's dollars, we would be talking about over $7 billion. If you think greased palms are only a thing of the present, you would be incorrect. The Public Building Commission strong-armed the city to get approval to build City Hall at the four corners where it sits today, along Broad and Market Streets. Money lined political pockets when deals were made with mason and marble contractors. City Hall's history is seedy, and that's what I like about it, too. I like that there's been an underbelly in this city for hundreds of years, and that will probably continue for hundreds of years to come. Now, that doesn't mean I personally support underbelly activities and just what is under that belly anyway, but it does mean I continually laugh and marvel at the dirty dealings of politicians for centuries. I'm not kidding when I say every mason in the city was probably involved with the construction of City Hall. What so many people don't realize is the building is eight stories tall, but the facade makes it look like it's three stories tall. The building is like an optical illusion. Your eyes see what it wants you to see, three stories. But there's no way three stories would reach that high. When you're inside the courtyard, you can tell it's much more than a three-story building. And there's no steel inside the structure. It's entirely built from stone and marble. So the walls are over 20 feet thick. Now think about that for a minute. How wide is your bedroom or your living room? My living room is about 25 feet wide. So I imagine my living room filled side to side with stone and marble. And that's how thick the walls of City Hall had to be to hold up thousands of tons of stone. Here's what's sad about City Hall and the dreams of grandeur held by the Building Commission. City Hall was supposed to be the tallest building in the country. And that status had Philadelphia legislature thinking we would not only rival but surpass cities like New York and D.C. It was never heralded as the tallest structure in the world because there was this little event known as the World's Fair of 1889. And with it came an interesting iron structure called La Tour Eiffel, or the Eiffel Tower. And that world wonder was erected in just two years. Never did City Hall receive the distinction of being the tallest building in the U.S. The Washington Monument, which took over 40 years to build, was finally opened to the public in 1888. Sorry, Philly, they beat your ass to it. The Washington Monument stands about 555 and a half feet, and Little City Hall comes up a bit short at almost 549 feet. Yeah. 
Six inches make one hell of a difference, don't they, folks? <laughs> but City Hall was the tallest inhabited structure in the U.S. when it finally opened. The other butthurt our building commission experienced was the architectural style of City Hall. It was designed in the style of the French Second Empire, and that's what I love about it. It is obscenely ornate and ostentatious, and I guess obscene is the right word, because once it was finished, the architectural style had completely gone out of style. I mean, maybe not with me, but with Philadelphians of the time, and it was ridiculed by other cities. While Philadelphia should have been celebrating in 1901 when this monstrosity, as some called it, was finally finished, instead they were pissed and they were more than a little embarrassed. These feelings lingered because in 1950, the city of Philadelphia actually looked into demolishing City Hall. That's a fact I never knew. Yeah, I know a shitload about this building. But of course, I dug deeper to find nuggets which I may not be familiar with, and that was one of them. If you've ever driven around Philly, especially around City Hall, you know it's a bitch to get around that building. The location of City Hall does not make it easy to navigate the very center of our city. And you know what? I'm okay with that, because I would pay any price to claim this building as ours. Again, it came down to money. The cost to tear down City Hall would have been about the same as what it costs to stand it up. And God bless the American Institute of Architects who put up a big fight over the idea of demolishing one of the most important 150 buildings in the entire United States. On top of that, we got City Hall on the historic register. And so over the last 50 or 60 years, there have been frequent projects and initiatives to restore and refurbish sections of the building in need of repair. If this city ever tried to tear down City Hall, I would chain myself to one of the 250 statues around that building and they would have to pry my body off the marble. Oh, did I mention we've got like 250 statues there? Yeah, that's one of the other remarkable features about City Hall, the statuary. Some are freestanding and some are done in relief either within or outside the facade of the building. Almost every statue in or on City Hall was created by one sculptor, a man named Alexander Milne Calder. Calder was born in Scotland and his father was a tombstone carver. So while not a sculptor per se, young Alexander was always around talented men carving beauty out of stone. He spent some time in London and worked on the Albert Memorial before moving to the United States and settling in Philadelphia. Calder is buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery on the edge of Philly, and I wonder who carved his headstone. It would be creepy to think he created it himself before he died, which he didn't, but I still think that's creepy. What I think is the most important of all Calder statues at City Hall is the 37-foot statue of Billy Penn that stands on top of the tower and gets us those extra 37 feet in height. Yeah, again, it's all about size. Now, Billy Penn didn't always stand atop the clock tower, and he didn't stand at all when Calder first started his design. It took years just to create the molds. Once the molds were done, the city was like, well, shit, we don't have a metal foundry big enough to cast the damn pieces. So a new metalworks company was built just to manage creating this massive statue, and that was the Tacconi Iron and Metalworks. It took two years to finish casting 14 different pieces of William Penn. And I should stop here for a minute because I realize when I talk about William Penn, I talk about him like everyone listening knows exactly who he is. 
was so funny. A couple weeks ago, one listener, and I mean this with love when I say it was funny, one listener thought I was Billy Penn, and I fucking loved that. But alas, no, I am not the founder of our great state. William Penn is the founder of Pennsylvania, and you can even visit his homestead, Pensbury Manor, outside of the city. My daughter's class went there when she was in fourth grade, so of course I had to be the chaperone, but I was a shitty chaperone because I had more questions for the guides than the kids and the teachers did, so I was kind of a pain in everybody's ass. And then I bought all the little girls in my kids' group souvenirs from the gift shop, um, which I found out later was highly frowned upon. So William Penn sat in pieces. Once the statue was put together, it stood on the ground. Now, it's 37 feet tall, so they had to figure out how the fuck to get something that weighs almost 55,000 pounds on top of the building. There's a picture of the statue standing in the courtyard in the center of City Hall, and the workmen around the statue in this picture look like Lilliputians from Gulliver's Travels. And that's what I think about when I'm in Philadelphia and I look up and see William Penn atop City Hall pointing to the northeast section of the city where supposedly he's pointing towards Penn Treaty Park where legend has it William Penn signed a treaty with the Lenape Indians. I think about being a little girl and seeing that building for the first time. I probably saw it long before I actually remembered seeing it and thinking it was the most beautiful and magical building I'd ever seen. And there was a giant standing on top of it. That's the mind of a five-year-old thinking the statue is a giant like Gulliver compared to the people on the ground. And that feeling never left me. Every morning when I drive into the city and I hit the parkway and City Hall comes into view, no matter what else is going on in my life, even if only for a few seconds, I am captured in those memories. The detail and history that Calder captured in his sculpture is remarkable. Penn carries the Penn Charter from King Charles II in his left hand, and I think about that, and my mind is blown. Maybe I should have been a history professor. It's actually something I thought about, but I probably say fuck too much. (laughs) So many people ask me about the other statues surrounding the clock tower. I actually get asked that question at work a lot because people that I work with know how much I love City Hall. I don't know what every statue is in or on that building, but I can tell you a little bit about the statues that surround the clock tower. They're sculptures of a Swedish family, a woman and children, because before William Penn arrived on this land, it was inhabited by Swedes, and that acknowledges the history before the British took over. They're statues of Native Americans to acknowledge who the true Americans really are, the first Americans, the men with whom William Penn negotiated and gave him some of their lands. And of course, the eagles that surround the clock tower. And all of this, to me, is like the dancing bear sculptures at the Children's Zoo in Central Park because I can't look at or talk about that building and the artistry and the craftsmanship without feeling like I'm a little kid again. And I love looking at old photographs of City Hall when it was under construction. There's one picture in particular, and you can find it all over the internet. I'll post it on social media for you, too. It's Calder sitting next to the head of William Penn, and it just makes me smile. The head is enormous. It's got to be at least three times the size of the artist. Oh my God, I love it. I love that our city tried and failed to have the biggest building in the world, at least for a little while, but we just couldn't pull it off. We still do have the biggest municipal building in the country, so I guess that counts for something. Yes, I am a massive history nerd, and I am not ashamed to admit it. And there's also more than the traditional American history tied to this building. 
there's some twisted shit going on here too, so let's talk about that. If you listened to the episode H.H. Philly, you know that H.H. Holmes was tried and convicted in City Hall right here in Philadelphia. We've had our fair share of notorious criminals walk through that magnificent courtyard with a compass inlaid in the bricks. We've seen mobsters and murderers. There's been swindlers and serial killers who have darkened the halls of this famous building. The Petrillo Cousins from the episode about the Philadelphia Poison Ring, Arsenic Incorporated. They and their massive gang were all tried in City Hall. A man named Nicodemo Scarfo, sweet Jesus, if that name isn't destined for mob activity, I don't know what is. He was known as Little Nicky in Philadelphia, and he took over the Philly mob in 1980 after the death of Angelo Bruno. But his reign was short-lived because he was convicted of murder, racketeering, and a litany of other charges in 1987. One of the country's most famous bank robbers was tried in City Hall, Willie Sutton, who, when he was asked why he robbed so many banks, he was reported as saying, that's where the money is. Duh, it's like an episode of Homer Simpson in Philly crime history. Why else would you rob banks except to get the money? Willie served time in Eastern State Penitentiary from where he escaped by digging under the walls. Yeah, it's like our own little version of Alcatraz here. I'm not going to share too much more about Willie because he and his gang will have a standalone episode this spring. One of the things that surprises me about City Hall is how few ghost stories there are. Philly is known for so many haunted spots like City Tavern, Washington Square Park near so many of the historic monuments, the Betsy Ross House, even the Philadelphia Zoo is haunted. And if you saw the movie Split by M. Night Shyamalan, which was fantastic, so don't try to tell me otherwise, where he kept the girls was under the Philadelphia Zoo. But there are so few stories about City Hall ghosts, and I'm shocked. The basement of that building is a little terrifying in spots. There are so many rooms and corridors and pipes and old abandoned boilers that have never been removed. I mean, how could they be removed? They probably built the entire building around them. Some parts of the basement look like they've been modernized and others look like you just stepped back into the late 1880s. There's only one ghost story from City Hall that I know of, and it's the only one I found when researching ghosts of City Hall. It's about a little girl, but there's no information about who she is, why she might be haunting the second floor of City Hall. She spends most of her time in a spot called the Conversation Room. Two years ago, a member of Mayor Nutter's security detail actually held a ghost hunt in City Hall. It was a man named Officer George Feinstein. Now, he'd never actually seen the ghost of the little girl, but he heard her laugh often enough when he made his rounds. And not just when people were in the building, but after hours. Two years ago, actually almost exactly two years ago, on March 21st, the mayor approved opening City Hall overnight for Officer Feinstein, two other police officers, and a member of an organization called Old City Paranormal. They're a ghost hunter group in Philadelphia. Supposedly, there was a reporter from the Philly Daily News there, but I cannot find anything about this investigation. Nothing on Philly.com, where all the Inquirer and Daily News articles live now. Nothing in their archives. Nothing on Old City Paranormal's website other than a few pictures. And none of those pictures seem to prove City Hall's second floor is haunted. I even reached out to Old City Paranormal on social media. Haven't heard anything back yet, but if I do, I'll let you guys know. 
I did, however, find some other really interesting and odd shit while I was searching for more details about the little girl who haunts City Hall, like an article about five ways to feel a spirit and a list of the best metaphysical shops in Philly, which I will be visiting soon because I think spots like that are so cool and so charming. I also found more paranormal investigative associations in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania than I ever imagined. Hello, can you say rabbit hole? Oh, I know you can. What we lack for ghosts in City Hall, we make up for in curses, as in the curse of William Penn. City Hall was the tallest building in Pennsylvania for quite a long time. And in the 70s and early 80s, Philly sports teams were on fire. Now, by Philly sports teams, I mean the Flyers and the Phillies. I don't watch the Eagles. I don't follow the Eagles. I don't like the Eagles. I do like football. I just don't like the Eagles. And in my house, what we watched mostly and the live games we went to mostly were Flyers and Phillies. And then in March 1987, one Liberty Place was erected, and that was taller than William Penn. Up to that point, it wasn't like a law. It was sort of a handshake deal that no buildings in Philly would ever be taller than the top of William Penn's hat. But when you look at major cities like New York, obviously, Chicago, D.C., Los Angeles, if Philly wanted to compete for real estate in the sky and really be considered a major metropolitan city, we had to start taking our buildings up above 550 feet. I remember when Liberty One went up, and I remember being pissed. I remember hating that building because it was taller than William Penn. I didn't want anything to be bigger than the giant man in the sky. But then our sports teams really started suffering after that building went up until 2008. And the cool thing that happened in 2008 was the Comcast Center had just been erected, and it became the tallest building in Philadelphia. They came up with this idea that they would place a tiny little statue. I think David Cole was the one that did it. Put it up at the very top of the new biggest building, the Comcast Center, that suddenly all our problems would be over. And everybody laughed at it. I believe I ridiculed it for quite some time here at WIP. And then they won a championship. This little statue of Billy Penn raised up there in June of 2007. And of course, the next year, in the fall of 2008, the Phillies win the World Series. And we all went, wow, is it possible that having Billy up higher than everything else is really the reason that we finally won? People asked me, said, Do you, was that really a curse? Or, I, said, I said, of course it was a curse. We're not going to take credit for the Phillies winning the World Series, but I mean, I think we take credit for removing an obstacle that would enable our professional sports teams to move back to their rightful place as being the best sports teams in the country. So I have bought into it from day one, and now that we actually won a championship, who am I to argue it? We finally won one. I can die a happy man. So the little statue of William Penn went up on top of the tallest building in Center City in 2007. And then in 2008, the Phillies won the World Series. And we thought, that's it. The curse has been broken. William Penn is the tallest in the city once again. And then that was it. We haven't won shit since 2008. So I don't know if the curse is a true thing or not. It worked for a year and then we kind of fell back into obscurity after that. 
Here's another seedy little story about City Hall. There's a tiny room in City Hall West where we have the worst asset forfeiture court in the entire country. Yeah, one little room that looks like it's been a neglected office or a storage room that's been converted into something else. That is where the city of Philadelphia seized over $64 million in asset forfeiture between 2004 and 2014. And I'm quoting those statistics from an investigation that was conducted by the Philadelphia Inquirer a few years ago. That sum is more than L.A. and New York combined for the same period of time. And here's why we got so much money flowing through Philadelphia because of asset forfeiture. According to Pennsylvania law, prosecutors only need to rely on a preponderance of evidence to seize property under the asset forfeiture regulation. And that is a lower burden of proof than the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt that's used in criminal cases. So we are bilking our own residents out of millions of dollars every year before they've even been convicted of a crime. And what's really pitiful is that so many of these cases are nickel and dime seizures. It's forfeiture of assets under $200. So how many cases would it take when you're looking at so many that have such a small dollar amount to hit $64 million in a 10-year period? That is some heinous bullshit. If you come to Philadelphia, you must visit City Hall, even if you live in Philadelphia or in suburban Philadelphia. It is an absolute must. And I highly encourage you to actually tour City Hall. You can do an interior tour. It's about two hours. Or you can just do the tower tour, which you heard me and Irene Baker talk about when I interviewed her about 100 things to do in Philly before you die. The Tower Tour runs every 15 minutes between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. And if you go to the website, www.phlvisitorcenter.com, then click on Museums and Attractions, all the information you need about either or both tours is there. The Tower Tour is really cool. It takes you up to William Penn's feet, and there's an observation deck with great views of the city. No, it's not as high up as some of the photographs I share online from the 40th or 50th floor of my office building. And no, I don't actually sit on those floors. My office is on the 11th floor. It's nice and close to the ground in the event there is a fire drill or an emergency, just the way I like it. But I do go to the upper floors for meetings and I never get tired of the views. And one of the buildings I always take pictures of, no matter what floor I'm on, is City Hall. Heitnick's House of Horrors was the six-month anniversary episode that I did for many of the listeners. This City Hall episode is sort of the one I did for myself. And I appreciate you letting me be self-indulgent. So this wraps up our episode about City Hall. Lots of history, not too many twisted tales. But like I said, I needed a break from the nefarious shit. I needed a little bit of history to clear my head and scrape away the residue of Gary Heidnick. Before I go, I want to do a little plug for CrimeCon, the true crime convention, this summer in Indianapolis, Indiana in June. If you're going and you haven't purchased your tickets yet, I have a discount code for you. If you go to their website and enter the code TWISTED20 when you register, you'll save 20% off your registration fees. I know there's also some folks who are going without tickets, and that's sort of cool too, because myself and a number of other podcasters are going to be hosting meetups in and around the city, not too far from the convention. So it's a great opportunity for you to connect with other like-minded true crime fans, even if you're not actually in the convention. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I also want to thank you for all the messages and posts and emails and tweets 
I love talking with so many of you. It's so much fun for me to connect with people who are listening to the show and get to know you a little bit. Speaking of getting to know one another, I've launched some exclusive content on Patreon. There are two episodes a month, could be more sometimes, but always a minimum of two. And it's really just me shooting the shit with you about the show, about what I'm doing between episodes, how I get story ideas, how I put the show together. If you want to check that out, just go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search on Twisted Philly. That's it from me for today. Ciao for now, Twisters.